It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, MetaMate. Hey. You not heard about this? No. This is how Mark Zuckerberg has told the employees of Facebook to refer to their colleagues now. They're no longer colleagues or Facebookers, they're MetaMates. Wow. MetaClegg. <laughs> Joe, you know, so, sometimes I wish that, because he's very high up at Facebook now. He's, he's, he's just got promoted, I think, yeah. I, sometimes I wish that Cameron would take over at Twitter and and you would take over at TikTok and it'd just be like the old days. Have you considered that? It's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting thought experiment. I, I would like a rematch in Silicon Valley. The rumble in the valley. Uh TikTok. You're thinking TikTok for me. Bebo? I... MySpace, you could bring that back. LinkedIn. <laughs> I told you that thing, didn't I, about how when I was teaching at Harvard in two thousand and uh three I had a student called Joe Green. He he kept on coming. He <laughs> he used to come and talk to me not about his essays, but about uh, this thing called Friendster, and it's going to take over the world and it's going to be extraordinary and it's all about like linking people up and so on. And it, he was Mark Zuckerberg's. I don't think he was his roommate, but I think he was sort of had some association with him. And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, whatever. He, he said it's going to change the world. It's going to change politics. All honestly, I was like, yeah. Anyway, back to whatever boring thing I was talking about. Anyway, Joe Green was right. I'm, I'm going to look him up. He talked really passionately about it, about it. And I'm pretty sure it was a sort of, it was a, it was a, either a precursor or a competitor to Facebook, which uh, in the fall of 2003, which is around the time I was teaching there, while undergraduate at Harvard University, Green helped Mark Zuckerberg create FaceMash. Ed, not only could you have been in at the ground floor of arguably the most corrosive thing to happen to society in the 21st century, you could have been dramatised in the film The Social Network. Yeah, I was left out. Who, who do you think would have played you? I did get once mistaken on an aeroplane for Ray Romano. Do you remember Ray Romano in Everybody Loves Raymond? Did you correct them? I did, yeah. 
Because that, that brings me on to an email we received from John Cooper, who says, almost an Ed spot? Question mark. I was walking through Birmingham New Street Station today when I saw someone sat checking their phone with an e-scooter balanced on the chair beside them. I looked once. I looked twice. It did look a lot like Ed, but I wasn't sure. Would he risk a whiz on an e-scooter? Wasn't me. Sorry to disappoint John there. I think, yeah. I think as soon as we all heard e-scooter, we thought it's probably not Ed. There's no photo, I assume. No, there isn't, sadly. I wondered, have you ever had anybody impersonate you? I'm not talking about like a Rory Bremner. I'm talking about, say, somebody <laughs> pretend that they're you to try and get into one of Gordon Brown's Gatsby-like parties. <laughs> um... Do you mean like somebody pretending to be me? Yeah. Not to my knowledge. I do occasionally get people asking for selfies saying, my friends say I look a lot like you. And then I say, oh, you have my sympathies. I was, I was thinking as well about you. You Are, are you the only person in the world, to, to your knowledge, called Ed Miliband? To my knowledge, yeah. So, so then I got to thinking, if you book a table in a restaurant, they, yeah. they must always know it's you. Well, some people don't know who I am. But so. if you book under the name Ed Miliband, they probably know the name. And, and well, they... some people wouldn't, some people wouldn't, I think. Which then made me think, if you yeah. ever get a bad table in a restaurant... It means they're not a supporter. Exactly. <laughs> that's, rather, that's a very interesting thought. Maybe we should do a sort of experiment. Yeah. I just think it's one of those names that no, nobody else has it. I remember once being at Heathrow and walking through, you know, where the taxi driver's holding up the signs. Yeah. And somebody had a sign saying Benedict Cumberbatch. And my first <laughs> thought was, oh, I wonder if it's the same one. Yeah, I can see that. And presumably there would now be a sort of code name for him. Did you ever have a code name? Presumably you must, you must have done it at some point. I don't know. What, you mean special protection? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, we should try and find that out. Yeah. What would your code name be? Gandalf. <laughs> this is Ed, Ed was uh, uh, commenting on the length of my beard last week. Have you noticed that I went straight out and got a haircut and a beard trim after your Gandalf comments? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sort of facially hair shame you. You wizard shamed me. I really didn't. Now, shall we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. This week, we are talking about British Sign Language. Over 87,000 people in the UK use BSL as their first language. It is used by a further 70,000 people regularly. But at present, it isn't an official language of the UK. And this presents a lot of problems for deaf people in everyday life, from things like going to the doctors, accessing basic services, meeting your MP if an interpreter isn't present. And that's why a bill is currently passing through Parliament, which would get BSL recognised as an official language. And we're going to be discussing why this change in law is so important and the impact it could have on people's lives. To help us dig into the subject, we're joined by David Buxton, chair of the British Deaf Association, Ben Fletcher, who was the first ever deaf blind person to run for a seat in Parliament, and Government Minister for Disabled People, Health and Work, Chloe Smith, who is supporting the private members bill currently working its way through Parliament, introduced by Rosie Cooper MP. Now, when David and Ben talk to us, it will be via an interpreter. And the only reason I mention that is because we're a podcast which is obviously an audio medium. And as a hearing person, the practicalities of that might not previously have occurred to you. I'm embarrassed to say that it hadn't to me. And part of what I'm hoping for with this is to learn about the everyday challenges and obstacles that deaf and hard of hearing people face in our country and the changes and corrections that we can make. On that, I'm pleased to say that we'll be releasing both a subtitled video and a transcript of this episode. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well... Because my mother-in-law was here, we arranged some fun things to do. Sarah knows a comedian who lives 
in the Tower of London. What? Yeah. It, he lives inside the Tower of London. His dad is constable of the Tower, so he gave us a private tour of bits that you wouldn't normally get to go in. Wow. And we went up into the Bell Tower. Wow. And th- there is a cell in there. This is impressive. I mean, it's an impressive story. There's, there's a cell in there that I think was used to imprison uh, Thomas More, maybe some of Henry VIII's wives. And Churchill got it in his head that if Hitler was to be captured, this is where they would put him. I guess for symbolic reasons as much as anything. But the, there wasn't uh, a modern toilet. So they constructed a toilet in readiness for Hitler's imprisonment. Are you sure about this story, Jeff? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've subsequently Googled it. Are you sure it's not like apocryphal? It sounds... No. Slightly far-fetched. Ed, the Raven Master of the Tower of London himself, has tweeted about this. Wow. You can find news articles about it. And this was very generously How showed to us by Tom Horton, who is a comedian who lives in the Tower of London. He lives in the Tower of London. Yeah, and he, do, he does TikToks. He's, he's gone viral with these TikToks talking about the history of the Tower of London. Wow. If I had been the chief executive of TikTok, I would clearly have known that. <laughs> um, what's, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, there's two reasons to be cheerful, I think. One, well, one is a reason to be cheerful and one is a discussion. Start with a discussion. Hard mode versus easy mode on Wordle. We have adapted to hard mode. I wouldn't say it's taking us many more guesses. Now, there's a debate going on, isn't there, about whether hard mode is better mode than easy mode? Yes, I sent you a screen grab of a a very lively Twitter debate between the comedian Richard Herring and the podcaster and actor Scroobius Pip about this. Basically, in easy mode, you you can sort of use lots of different words without the same letters in order to get the general letters then it's the, you've got sort of an anagram territory and then you can make up the word whereas in hard mode it's got to be a slightly more incremental process it's not clear to me that hard mode at least in our case has taken us more guesses than easy mode but that might just be well somebody had tweeted richard saying hard mode equals guess yes. mode scroobius pip then said guess mode versus deduction mode mate you've made your choice mm. so the implication being that by getting the unused letters out of the way, you're using more detective skills. Mm. I mean, you were pretty contemptuous when I was. you found out I was on easy mode, let's be honest. Now, but anyway, that wasn't my reason to be cheerful. My reason to be cheerful is all of the spin-offs. Quirdle, where you have to do four at once. That sounds like 3D chess. Nerdle, which is the numbers one, which we did for the first time last night, relatively successfully. Worldle, which is where you look at a some contours of a map and you guess which country it is we did remarkably well yesterday on this basically i guessed zambia and it was eight thousand kilometers away from zambia anyway and then i guessed second guess finland and i was correct wow i know it was sort of slightly remarkable anyway there are lots of spin-offs do you think this could be um this could be our key to hitting the big time if we came up with a wordle spin-off hmm. birdle <laughs> you're just guessing species of birds for keen ornithologists you're on to something Curdle? What's that? Dairy products going <laughs> dairy, sour. Dairy <laughs> products. <laughs> Curdle. Douglas Hurdle. Interesting. Noodle. Different types of spaghetti. And, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Well, I think we should throw it open to the reasons to be cheerful listeners. If, if you have one of these that you think could be the next hit, then do let us know about it. Cheerfulpodcast.com is the website where you can send us an email 
also, I thought, if, like John Cooper, people think they have a spotting of Ed, but they're not quite sure, we can confirm or deny those. Like spot the ball. Ed the ball. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to talk now to Ben Fletcher, who was the first deafblind candidate for MP in the UK. And Ben is a software engineer at the Financial Times. Perhaps the big theme to the episode is about who our country is set up for. And if this isn't too big a question, I wondered if I could ask you to talk about the fixable ways in which life in the UK is made more difficult for you as a deaf person. Well, when I was actually born, my parents, um, they're not deaf and they'd never met deaf people before. When they realised that uh, now they had a deaf child, they asked the professionals what they should do. And the professionals said, ah, we need to try to make sure that he can speak using his voice and hopefully he'll be able to hear and lip read when he grows up. So my parents went along with that, but that obviously didn't work well for me. My language development was very slow and I was way behind other children in nursery. But then they found out about British Sign Language and my parents or the professionals never, had never told us about that previously. So they did some research. They went to deaf clubs and realized that um, there's a full, rich visual language out there that people are using every day. So my parents realized that is what I would need. So they started campaigning to the council saying our son Ben needs British Sign Language. The people in the nursery didn't know anything about BSL, so they brought in a uh, tutor to teach me some sign language. And after lots of campaigning, it was finally agreed that I could have a deaf sign language tutor, which completely changed my life. Made me who I am now, uh, my identity as a deaf person, using uh, full and complete sign language and improve my confidence. And as you said, I stood for Parliament, I'm working at the Financial Times now. And... Sign language has been vital to me. And there's lots of barriers that we face in the UK still in education, health, and in everyday life. Just on that, I know, for example, when your wife gave birth, this was something that factored into it. And this is something that I, as a hearing person, would have been ashamed to say, ignorant about without knowing your story. Yes. My partner is hearing and she's great at sign language and we've been together a long time and now we have a baby if it was a home birth because we wanted to be in a nice relaxed home environment so on that day that lauren's waters broke the person who was supposed to come and uh, supervise the uh, birth all of a sudden called an ambulance i couldn't follow what was going on because they were just speaking to each other and i didn't know if the baby was at risk of dying and i was really stressed about that the ambulance came i tried to write notes to the nurse to find out what was going on but they weren't able to um, effectively to communicate with me even that way and i had i was completely in the dark no communication whatsoever and my partner wasn't able to translate for me because she was um, obviously in the middle of the baby arriving. So very stressful. And is your baby okay 
Yes, the reason the ambulance came, I only found out later, was because there was conium, the baby's first stool in the amniotic fluids. And that's why they said we couldn't do a home birth. It was just a precaution. And they had to take Lauren to hospital. So the baby was absolutely fine. But I didn't know that at the time. I just wish I'd known at that moment rather than finding out later on. And obviously, you made reference to this earlier, that campaigning has been a big part of your life. Your mother wrote a book, Ben's Story, A Deaf Child's Right to Sign. And I think there was a documentary film about your first year at nursery too. I suppose that has taught you that there is a real need to fight for change, which is what your mother obviously did. That's exactly right. In 1982-ish, and now in 2022, we still face many of the same barriers. It's an ongoing battle. And my mum taught me how to campaign, and I am still campaigning. When I was younger, uh, I didn't have any access to language, as I mentioned. Um, And now I'm older. It's difficult to access politics. It's difficult to access medical care. So, yeah, I'm still campaigning. And what have those years of campaigning taught you about the obstacles to change and the willingness to change on the part of institutions, systems, individuals? Yes, to all of those. I have tried to escalate things, but there are constantly excuses. And it's a big effort to try to escalate those things. I've often felt like an alien in my own country. People don't know who I am. People don't understand deaf people. People don't understand the sign language I'm using. And I've felt like a foreigner in my own country. When I mentioned about the hands-on experience in hospital, I tried to escalate that, but they refused to accept anything. So legally, there's no backing for us. There's no support for us to take that any further. And, and that's why this bill is important. Yes, it's great. And I would hope that I would be properly recognised then and I would no longer feel like an alien. I'd feel like a British person using BSL, which is recognised as a proper language. The bill is a private member's bill. And I think it's going to have limited powers. So I'm not sure it's actually going to be everything that we need. But as a first step, it's okay. But there are still many barriers that need to be removed. Ben, in 2017, you became the first deafblind candidate to run for a seat in the House of Commons. Talk to us about what that experience was like and what the reaction was to your candidacy. That's right. In 2017, I stood for the Green Party and I did meet lots of people when I was canvassing with an interpreter. And the response was generally positive, but it was frustrating because at that time, there was no support to provide access. So we had to to raise funds for interpreter costs. But we're supposed to live in a democratic country and people should have access to politics. But people such as myself don't have that equality of access. So we had to raise funds to pay for interpreters. And we did several events, but 
main thing that um, stands out for me is I went to the AGM of the local Green Party and they'd raised 300 pounds, which you know is not a huge amount of money. And nearly all of that 300 pounds had actually been spent by the party on access for me, which I thought was really embarrassing. That should have gone on um, resources, campaigning, leafleting, canvassing people. It shouldn't have been spent entirely on my access needs. So that feels like it should be something that's, I don't know, part of the Electoral Commission's job to fund that. That shouldn't be a concern of an individual candidate. I completely agree. I would love to see equality of access in politics. I really would. On the wide, you know, not just elected representation, but on wider representation, role models are hugely important in terms of how people feel included and valued and also aspirationally as to, as to what they can achieve. And it, it seems to me that the number of high profile deaf people isn't at all proportionate to the number of deaf and hard of hearing people in society in the country. Do you have any thoughts on why that is and what we could be doing better? Yes, that's very important. In my work, I don't have a person like me that I can aspire to be like. I'm constantly having to break through those glass ceiling barriers myself. And it's hard to become the role model because of the barriers I face. Recently, we had Rose on Strictly Come Dancing, which was a massive achievement for her. And I watched her success that was noticed around the world. And it really made me cry, actually. It was such an emotional, powerful thing to see her breaking through barriers and reaching where she did. And politics doesn't have any representatives. So yes, we need access in education to improve, which would then lead on to further opportunities for deaf people to be able to access things such as politics. So there would be more, more deaf people who are knowledgeable about politics as well. Now, our listeners are always interested in what they can do individually. Is there something that people who aren't part of the deaf community often miss or often get wrong uh, just because it's not based on our experience? I think I would start with education. If the government could support parents of deaf children to learn sign language, that would be a big positive. In schools... There are lots of deaf children who have a teacher of the deaf, but many of those teachers of the deaf only have basic sign language skills. So they can't have the real in-depth conversations with the children. So the quality of sign language teaching in schools is not great. So if the government could standardize a high level of communication with deaf children in schools, that would be a real positive. And at universities, the government should make sure that we have access so we're able to represent ourselves rather than, as I mentioned, about having to raise funds for interpreters. So if we were able to access politics and then we can influence the changes that we need. Well, Ben Fletcher, thanks so much for taking the time to, to talk to us. It's been such a, an enlightening conversation to hear about your experience. Thanks for being our guest today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's really been really nice to meet you both. And 
I think the Reason to be Cheerful podcast is really important in today's world, which is quite depressing currently. So thank you to you both. Thank you, Ben. I found it very, very inspiring. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We're going to talk now about the Act Now campaign and hear about so many of the issues facing deaf people in the UK. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined by David Buxton, who is chair of the British Deaf Association. David, thank you for joining us. Perhaps you can start by giving us a little bit of the background on the British Deaf Association. Yes. So the British Deaf Association was established in 1890. And that was established directly in response to an international conference held in Milan of educators of the deaf. And as part of that meeting, it was decided that deaf children should no longer be educated in sign language. So effectively a prohibition on teaching deaf children in sign language. The British Deaf and Dumb Association, as it was known then, was established to campaign for sign language rights. And here we are today still campaigning for legal recognition of British sign language. And on to the Act Now campaign, which is aligned with this private member's bill that Rosie Cooper has introduced. Could you lay out the background for us? So what is the current situation in the UK and what is the change that you'd like to see with regards to BSL being recognised as an official language? Sure. So we formed the BSL Act Now campaign last year. And that was directly in response to reaching the 18-year mark since uh, the government recognised British Sign Language by ministerial statement in 2003. And in 2003, the belief was that that was a first step, that was the first path that we would walk down, which would lead us towards legal recognition. But We got to the point last year when we thought, well, we're 18 years down the line. We celebrate Sign Language Week on the week of the 18th of March. And last year we decided, actually, we're not going to celebrate Sign Language Week anymore until we get legal recognition of the language. So that was the start of it. We got in touch with lots of MPs to see whether they would be willing and able to use their private member's bill should they come out of the ballot to support our campaign. Here we are today at the committee stage, having got through the second reading in January. And what difference would it make to the the lives of deaf and hard of hearing people in the UK? What would be the, the ripple effects, the changes that happened as a result of this? The reason we wanted legal recognition of British Sign Language is because whilst we have the Equality Act on the statute book, and clearly deafness is a protected characteristic underneath the terms of the Equality Act, There is no reference to sign language in the Equality Act whatsoever. 
So when a decision maker has to determine what is or is not a reasonable adjustment, it can be quite difficult for them to determine that sign language, sign language interpretation, services directly in sign language um, are, are required under the Equality Act. And when it comes to providing, for example, sign language interpreters, deaf people often have a real struggle to ask for fully qualified registered sign language interpreters who have gone through the required training and deliver the required standard because it is not mentioned in the Equality Act, which led us to this particular campaign. So if this bill passes, how do you think the day-to-day lives of deaf people in the UK will change in a sort of practical way? We've had to accept a certain degree of pragmatism due to the limitations of bringing through a private member's bill, not least a private member's bill by an opposition backbencher who was 20th on the list. So there are some concessions that have been made. But I think there is an emotive success for deaf people seeing their language recognised. There is also a really important facility there for deaf people to point towards legislation that says, hey, you know, this is our language. It is recognised. We obviously couldn't introduce any cost elements to the bill um, as a private member's bill, but there is guidance. And as far as we're concerned, that guidance is pivotal because that guidance will be issued to all government departments. And just to pick one example, hopefully that will ensure qualified interpreters rather than, quotes unquote, cowboy interpreters delivering services. And after this bill passes, if it does pass, where would you like to see the campaign go next? It's a good question, because I think most people assume that once it passes, the campaign is over, and it certainly won't be over. I think one of the really good things to have come out of this campaign is that the nine national deaf charities have got together and we have worked side by side. I think we will continue to strive with with politicians to review the effectiveness of the act should it pass and try to hold decision makers to account should it not be effective and see whether we can make strengthen it if it requires. But what we have to do at this stage is if we get this passed, we, we really do have to hold the government to account to ensure the minister has said lots of wonderful things about what, what she hopes this, this bill will achieve if passed. And we, we need to make sure that we're watching those things. And if they're not happening, we need to ensure that we campaign to make sure that they do. It sounds like it's something that could facilitate much wider change. For, for example, schools in this country currently have the option to include BSL in the curriculum, but it's not something that widely happens in mainstream education. Is that a tangential benefit of this? Yes, um, for, for, for sure. I mean, the Department for Education is currently establishing a, a consultation on the establishment of a BSL GCSE, which is an excellent step. But you've obviously asked me a question, and this isn't quite the point, but, but, but let me, let me um, ask you a question, if I may. Do you remember which GCSE language subject you took, which modern foreign language you took? Yeah, I did French and German. And what grade did you get, can I ask? I got an A in French and a C in German. Excellent. Okay. And how is your French and German today? Terrible. 
terrible. Yeah. So, so that's what I was driving at. So you got an A. You were fairly competent at the language, but you know, if you don't use language, you lose it. I mean, that's what we always say. But when it comes to BSL, there is far more chance that you will continue to use that language. You don't need to go to France or Germany to use the language. And that's why we think it is so important that it would just help people to feel included in society if people can learn to sign. That's very powerful. And I didn't know that Jeff had got an A in French. So I've learned something new (laughs) about him. So thank you for asking him that question, David. (laughs) We're talking a lot about signing for English. What about other native languages like Welsh and Gaelic? Yeah, in terms of researching specific sign language for, let's say, Welsh or for Scots Gaelic, as you've asked, we don't have much research on that. There are regional variations across the UK. The most easy analogy to draw is accents and dialects. We all know that there are words that are unique to Liverpool, to Newcastle, etc., Scouse, Geordie, and what have you. And, And the same applies to sign language because it's an organic language and that's how languages grow organically with the local community. The proposed bill only deals with England, Wales and Scotland and the primary reason for that is because in Northern Ireland there are two sign languages in use, a British sign language and Irish sign language. So it's a devolved matter and there is a bill hopefully going through the Stormont there. But sign languages has evolved in exactly the same way really as spoken languages. And is is a kind of an interesting adjacent issue around that in having British Sign Language recognised as an of- official language. There is a recognition of the heritage of of this particular form of sign language. Absolutely, and and that's part of that emotive celebration of having this bill passed. And I think what we do moving forward is that we, as deaf organisations, still have a lot of work to do to try and gain more visibility of the language because you rightly say it's a part of the cultural fabric of this country. And we've seen a real interest. You know, last year we had Rose Ailing Ellis obviously win the Strictly competition and there was that very emotive part, especially emotive for hearing people, where the music stopped, but she kept dancing. And I think that had quite a powerful impact on people. And it's that kind of thing that I think we need to take advantage of. These things aren't new to deaf people in the deaf community, but it has, I think, just given a little bit more exposure. It's given mainstream society a little bit more of a snapshot into the deaf community. And we need to really build on that, I think. So, for example, I can tell you that both of you can sign. If I were to ask both of you what the sign for goodbye is, just logically, what would you think it is? We're waving. Yeah, exactly. So we're waving. And that that is actually the BSL sign for goodbye. And I think the reason I, I use that as a slightly flippant example, not all signs are quite so iconic, but I think we freeze up when we meet a deaf person who uses sign language and and we don't think that actually we are using our faces and our bodies and a lot of us gesticulate when we talk, hearing people that is anyway. And just to add some of that when talking to a deaf person, hello, same sign for goodbye, by waving your hand, good. This is not the sign for bad, the thumbs down, but it is a gesture that deaf people will understand 
for bad. And if we can just do things like that, for example, it, it just makes a huge difference to the everyday lives of deaf people. I think we might be about to make BSL history here because we we have something on the podcast that I don't believe there is currently a sign for. It's called the Jeffocracy, and it's the utopia that will come into existence when all the ideas we hear about every week are finally implemented. So the ultimate question will be, what is the first thing our government should implement on this? But firstly, how do you go about devising a sign for a new word like Jeffocracy? Oh. <laughs> That's a really good question. And actually, it's only fair that I say I am not a sign language linguist. I'm really not. I, I am a campaigner. And there is a significant difference. Not every deaf person who signs is a linguist and understands the language and how it, how it evolves. I use it in a very practical sense, but I, I couldn't proclaim to know. We'll have to delegate that to a committee of linguists. In, in the meantime, what is the first thing that if, if we appointed you secretary for deaf and hard of hearing people, what is the first thing you would implement at government level on, on day one? Oh, I think the very first thing I'd do, because I really think that it is the cornerstone of everything, is education. And I would try and deal with early years. Let's try and get the foundations right Let's give children access to language at the very first opportunity. Let's support families that have deaf children to understand it's okay that your child is deaf. They're going to have so many opportunities, maybe not exactly the same opportunities, in some senses better opportunities, in some senses worse opportunities. But let's really focus on that stage of life, those very, very young children and their families. And if we can get that foundation right, I think everything flows from there. Well, look, it's been really important and enlightening to talk to you. David Buxton, Chair of the British Deaf Association, we really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to speak now to Chloe Smith, MP, who is Minister for Disabled People, Health and Work. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. And you are supporting Rosie Cooper's private members bill. Tell us, how is this going to make a difference to the lives of deaf and hard of hearing people in the UK? I'm really excited about this bill and I'm, and I'm so pleased you're featuring it on the on the podcast. And I'm so pleased to be able to work with Rosie on it. As a minister, you have a combination of things you can do to make change. And, and sometimes that will be through the big things as government bills or as, uh, as the things you do from the government initiation perspective. But otherwise, you can also create a real difference by working with individuals on private members' bills. And so Rosie and campaigners have been fantastic in this case. And what we're hoping to do is really two things, I would say. First of all, it's to recognise BSL as a language. And that is something that I know is incredibly important to deaf people, to the deaf community, to the campaigners behind the bill. And the second thing that we're then going to do with that is create guidance of a couple of different sorts that we hope will really help in a practical way make change for deaf people and for BSL users in how they come into contact with public services. And it's my hope that this will really help people hugely tangibly in making those public services work better for them in conjunction with the Equality Act, of course, and that that will be something we can all be really proud of through this bill when it becomes an act. 
Tell us a bit more about that then, this guidance. How will it nudge councils, GPs, other public services in the direction of providing BSL facilities? One section of the bill will ask the Secretary of State to provide guidance as to how BSL can be promoted and facilitated. So, for example, that might put greater emphasis on what is needed in a doctor's surgery or in a school or in a job centre even across the whole range of public services. And it's really important, actually, that this is in conjunction with the Equality Act, because that's where, of course, you get the real legal guarantee of access because people are obliged to provide reasonable adjustments. And I really want to support deaf people in having that be a reality. And for those of us who are a little bit woolly on the uh, parliamentary procedure, where is the bill currently up to? The bill has passed its second reading in the House of Commons, which is where you debate the general principles of a bill. And that was hugely well received in the case of this bill, really roundly supported. And and I think it's a great example of where you can get cross-party working. After that, we have gone to a committee stage, which is where you would go line by line through a bill. Now, this is quite a short bill. It's only got a small number of sections. And that's where we've just gone into a bit more detail and scrutinised how we expect the mechanics of the bill to work. And that's where, for example, we've got the recognition of British Sign Language. We've got the duty of the Secretary of State to report on how sign language is promoted or facilitated in government communications with the public. And then we've got this third section, which is about guidance on the promotion and facilitation of sign language more broadly. And that's where you'll get best practice, you'll get case studies, you'll get the kind of guidance that will really help in everyday interactions with public services for deaf BSL users, and which will really, I think, be the place where you'll see a particular practical difference. So what happens next and and what do you expect the timeline to be? Well, we hope to be able to see the bill safely pass inside the next few months, I hope, into an act. And then within the next few years, you'll start to see evidence of those things making a real difference because you'll have the guidance in place in operation and more besides. The more besides, actually, Jeff, is really important because there's more things we're we're going going to do in addition just to the legislation. I've made a a promise to Rosie and to Parliament that there's uh, a package of measures that I want to put in place alongside this bill. And that includes having a board of BSL users who can give the government advice and thoughts on what needs to be involved in the guidance here and on other matters to do with BSL. There's more we want to be able to do to increase the number of BSL interpreters, which is a a genuine issue. In addition to that further, there's more I want to do with access to work. Now, this is a fund that is there to help disabled people in the workplace or indeed disabled job seekers as well, of which around around half actually goes, half in, in terms of financial value, goes towards supporting deaf people because it goes towards the cost of interpretation, the cost of an interpreter to support that deaf person. So it's a really really valuable thing but I think there's even more we can do through that and finally the the last element of this non-statutory package that goes alongside the bill is that I want to do more through the national disability strategy now this is a separate piece of work it contains over a hundred commitments that are geared towards improving everyday life for disabled people as part of reporting back on that on that piece of work as part of the next year of that piece of work I want to see what more we can do to support BSL and deaf people as well. 
So, so given those ambitions, and I appreciate what you say about the approach that Rosie's taken, and I also think that the public like to see cross-party work on these things, would a piece of legislation not be better originating from your government department because that would strengthen it and obviously you would be able to include spending plans in a way that isn't possible with a private member's bill? Well, if you like, that's, that's now a hypothetical question, Jeff, because we're doing it. And actually, just on this point about cost, the point here actually is that any cost involved with promoting or facilitating BSL ought already to have been included in how public services use the Equality Act and how deaf people or any disabled person should have protection that accrues from the Equality Act. So in a technical sense, if you say to me, what are the costs of this legislation as you bring it forward or what costs should public departments account for now that this legislation is in place, the answer actually is they should be doing what is already there through the Equality Act and should be accounting for it that way. So actually, I think the cost question, if you don't mind me saying, is a slightly a red herring with this bill. The fact is it works hand in hand with what's already there in the Equality Act. And I think together, these are good approaches that, as I say, I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to work with so many inside and outside of Parliament to bring about. Do you see this bill having any impacts in the private sector? Do you think it could do anything to encourage employers to consider facilitating BSL? Yes, I do, in a number of ways. First of all, as I've just been making the argument there, actually, the Equality Act already applies, of course, beyond the public sector and and into every sphere. That's essential. Secondly, the importance of Clause 1 of this bill that recognises BSL I think will go much wider than just ministerial departments. It will have a symbolism that goes much wider than that, and I and I really welcome that. And finally, I think also the guidance that we will produce that, again, technically is specified to apply to public services, can also be just as powerful in uh, a wider context. There is absolutely nothing stopping anybody, you, me, any person listening to this podcast, picking up that guidance in due course and saying, oh, great, there's a really powerful case study that explains to me from the perspective of a BSL user or a deaf person. And from a personal perspective, I read that you'd started learning BSL after seeing Rose on Strictly. I've dipped my toe in the water. I wouldn't at all pretend to be any more expert than that. But I wanted to begin to understand a little more about British Sign Language. And the opportunity of of seeing Rose Ailing Ellis on Strictly Come Dancing, I think, is a really powerful thing. You've seen thousands, if not millions of people across the country be inspired in that same way. What you've actually seen is a many uh, thousand percent rise in interest in BSL because of Strictly. And I can tell you that figure from the expressions of interest that, that various campaigners and charities saw in BSL classes, BSL tuition. So all round, Rose has been fabulous. And I'm just a a small cog in that wheel of having been a little inspired by her to learn more and and do more. Well, hopefully this bill will continue that visibility of BSL beyond what's on the page. Uh, Chloe Smith, Minister for Disabled People, Health and Work, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for asking me. Well, what did you think? I really enjoyed this episode. I I feel embarrassed about how little I knew prior to these conversations. I can't think of a reason why this bill wouldn't pass and you'd hope that future legislation would go further. But 
it's it's quite moving. Definitely. You've got citizens of our society who are excluded because a language that can be incorporated in all these ways isn't being. And I am um, increasingly worried about my ability to learn anything, my cognitive functions. But whenever I think, oh, should I be downloading one of these apps to learn a language? No, really, if I'm going to learn anything, I should learn some BSL. Yeah, that's a good point. It is so interesting, isn't it? I agree with you about the episode. You know, it's hearing hearing about the world from the point of view of people who often don't have their voice heard about how the world looks and feels to them. I mean, I just thought it was just so interesting hearing from Ben about the sort of everyday real obstacles that he faced, faces. It really makes you think about who our country is set up for. Yeah, definitely. It's such, it's such a large number of people as well. I agree. And obviously, David talked about the history, and obviously there has been stigma associated with British Sign Language. What he said about what happened in the 19th century, uh, the challenges that Ben's mum faced in having him being taught to sign, you know, all of those things. I think it's very striking, isn't it? I'm very glad we did the episode. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. I went to a new cinema close to where you live yesterday. It's in um, like a new development. They built it across several units. So one of the units is the box office. One is the cafe restaurant. Then there's another for one screen, another for another screen and so on. And what they didn't give any thought to at all is these units don't join up. So if you want to go to the toilet and I am somebody with a weak bladder who can't get through a film without going to the loo... You have to be escorted there and back again by a chaperone member of staff. How weird. I think it's a design flaw. I I don't want to be making small talk with an escort as I'm taken back to my seat after going to the toilet. I don't want them to know where I've just been. Also, it's very very labour-intensive, I would have thought. Also, what happens if you need to go twice? You again. I know, because I sometimes do, and then I already feel embarrassed about that. I'm sure it will evolve. What, do you think they should dig a tunnel? I don't know. Commode seats? (laughs) How peculiar. Right, should we thank our guests? We should. Thank you to David Buxton, Ben Fletcher and Chloe Smith. Thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces all the audio for our podcast. Uh, Thanks for your hard work, Emma. Uh, Also thanks to Joe Kenyon, who did all the research and guest booking. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed our music and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He thinks nobody listens to these little quips at the end of the episodes. He agrees. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.